Ogger. Michaela Beasley once wrote of the day when she was first diagnosed with cancer. She described the moment in the following way. She said this. My husband turned and said the words that I was not expecting to hear. It is cancer. Numb. That was the feeling. Numb. I didn't cry, although I felt as though I should. And I think my face just held that same blank expression as my husband's. He held me in his arms and everything seemed to turn to either black, to white, or to green. The world, in a moment, it lost all of its color. Now, friends, whether or not we can relate this morning to sentiments like that, one thing's for sure. One day we, as Christians, one day we will be able to relate to sentiments like that. That in our glorious salvation, what has happened is that we've been called to follow in the footsteps of one who has done what? One who has suffered more than any other. That for us, for you and I in Christ, there will be moments like that. That there will be for us in our Christian walk moments of great and severe crisis. Now, in light of that, how do we as Christians respond? Like, how is it that you and I are going to deal with moments like that when they arise? Well, in this portion of scripture that we're looking at this morning, what we see, I guess, is the people of God face what you might call the crisis to end all crisis, isn't it? It is an Esther for, it's a disaster of an almost unimaginable scale. And in this, in this, and I think in particular in the way that Mordecai involves Esther, what I think we are given today are lessons for the Christian life, lessons that are going to help us to cope. Or, i tell you what, let me put it another way to you just now. What I think we're given in Esther chapter 4 are challenges from God And they are challenges for the Christian in crisis. Challenges for the Christian in crisis. So, with these things said, I would invite you to please turn with me in uh, your Bible to Esther chapter 4. If you're visiting us, there will be probably a Bible nearby, or I'm sure a kind person next to you might even let you look at their copy. But let's turn to Esther chapter 4. On page 504. And let's consider the first challenge, shall we? The challenge to reveal ourselves as the children of God. You got it? The challenge to reveal ourselves as the children of God. Now, if if you're a regular London City Presbyterian Church, you know how I would normally begin this part of the sermon. Don't you? I would normally say, oh, do you remember... Do you remember what happened last time in the series? Remember what we looked at? Well, given the sheer horror of what it was that we looked at last week, surely the events of that are still fresh in your mind. 
Are they not? Do you remember what happened? The great enemy of God, Haman. You remember? Haman the Agagite. You remember what he did? He put into place this edict for the destruction of the Jews. You remember this edict read aloud 11 months from this day that all men and women and children who are Jews, what will happen? They will be annihilated, exterminated. You remember it. Come on. Well, given that that's the background, what is it we see when we pull back the curtain on Esther chapter 4? We see a people group right across the Persian Empire. Do you see what they are doing? Your heart not going to these people? What are we told? They are fasting. They are weeping. These countless people, they are wailing, crying out to God is what we're told. Now, I think probably most of us at some stage or other have used Google Earth. Have we used Google Earth and cast our mic back to Google Earth? Let's use Google Earth again just for a moment, shall we? From this sort of bird's eye view of the Persian Empire. Let's zoom in. Let's first zoom in to the citadel of Susa. Then, come on, let's carry on. Let's Google Earth it right down to the King's Gate. Who do we see? Who do we see at the King's Gate? Do you see? It is one man. And it's Mordecai. And what is he doing? Do you see he is dressed in sackcloth and ashes? And he is crying. He himself is wailing and calling out to God. But it is not just our eyes that can see him. Isn't that right? From their vantage point in the palace, Esther and her colleagues, they can see this man. And at that point, it all gets a little bit Wimbledon on us, doesn't it? It's like we're kind of at center court. Watching a match because you see what I mean? Back and forth, back and forth messengers are sent between Mordecai and Esther. Now do you see, do you follow how it works? First of all, Esther sends to Mordecai a messenger with clothes. Why with clothes? presumably to permit him access into the palace to tell her what on earth is going on here. Why are you crying? But when Mordecai refused the clothes, what does she do? She sends another messenger just to find out, Mordecai, why are you in sackcloth and ashes? Friend, why are you crying your eyes out at the king's gate? And do you see it? What news this messenger brings back to Esther the news that not only is there the impending annihilation of her very own people, but what's the other side to it? What does Mordecai want her to do? Do you see? Mordecai wants her, her, to get involved. He wants Esther to try and intervene. Now, one of the commentators at this point is brilliant. What he says is that you can almost see the blood drain from Esther's face. You kind of get what he means, do you not? For her to get involved here? Like, what is this going to, what is this going to mean? She's going to have to go in unannounced to see the king. Something that only Xerxes' closest advisors were allowed to do. Something that risked almost certain death. But there's another side to it, isn't there? If she is going to appeal on behalf of her people, what is this girl going to have to do? Do you see? 
she's going to have to reveal herself to be a Jew. Now, a couple of years ago, uh, LCPC, um, we had as part of this congregation a, a lovely South Korean girl. She was a lovely girl. There was a little bit of a problem, though. Uh, lovely girl. But what she would do uh, was introduce herself in different ways. Okay, so with me, she introduced herself as she young. But on the same day with Catherine, she introduced herself as Scarlet. Okay, which, let me tell you this, is mightily confusing. If you're trying to who it is that you've invited to come for a Sunday lunch. But wait a minute, you remember this, don't you? Like, you remember that that's the same with Esther. That this is a woman with two names. Isn't that right? That she was, you remember, Hadassah. She, yeah, she's the lovely Jewish girl. She's the child of the covenant. Yeah, but who else is she? She's Esther. Like, she is this Persian, this Persian queen that has allowed nearly no one in her life to find out about her Jewishness. And you see what this is about now. You see what this means. What is she going to have to do to effectively appeal on behalf of her people? She's going to have to come clean. Do you see it? Like she is going to have to stand before Xerxes and tell him exactly who she is. I'm hoping this morning you see the scale, the size of the dilemma that this girl faces. But if so, I hope you also see how familiar it is to you and I. A couple of weeks ago in here, we talked at length about what we called the scandal of the secret saved. The very fact that there are a multitude of Christians in the United Kingdom today who entirely keep their identity as Christians hidden from the people in their lives. Yes, we might sort of say once or twice that we go to church, maybe. But we don't say what that means. We do not speak about our true identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, wait a minute. Do we not need to rest over that subject again here? Because are we not in Esther chapter 4 learning one crucial lesson? That there must come a point in time. Must come a point in time. Where you and I reveal to all those around us just who we are. There must come a point when we reveal that we find our identity in Jesus Christ. Isn't that right? That even, now think about this, even if it's like with Esther in this palace that we have been keeping our identity secret for years. Even as it was with Esther that we've been keeping that secret from those closest to us. Our spouse, even as here, that even if that revelation about our faith, if like here it comes at such a cost, Surely it is that the people of God must stand up and declare that we have our identity in God. And I want you to see this this morning. That is especially crucial when you and I find ourselves at points of crisis. Because you know what it's like, don't you? you? You know what it's like. You go through something really hard in your life and what happens? 
what happens? It's almost like everyone in your life, they turn and look at you. Is that not right? The biopsy results come back and or the redundancy happens or there is a relationship breakup and what happens? That thing, that crisis, whatever it is, acts as a magnet, doesn't it? For all of this unwanted attention, everyone looking at us, everyone asking, are you okay? But wait a minute. We're Christians. Let's flick it on the head. Do you see what opportunity that affords us? If when that crisis strikes, if we do what Esther does here, if we stand up to be counted as Christians, what's going to happen? What will happen? What a witness it will be to other people, won't it? Won't it? Like what encouragement, if we stand up as Christians, at that point, what encouragement it will be to the other people of God. What honor it will bring our Savior. Do you see this? Do you? Friends, in Esther 4, this girl, Esther, she was faced with a horrible dilemma. But I need you to see that as a Christian, you are going to face exactly the same dilemma in your life. You are. You will face this dilemma. So what are you going to do? When crisis hits, will you remain silent? Or when crisis hits, will you reveal that you belong to Jesus? So we see the challenge here, the challenge to reveal ourselves as the children of God. There is a second challenge here. The challenge to trust ourselves to the deliverance of God. To trust ourselves to the deliverance of God. North of the border. Scottish football fans have a nickname. Scottish football fans north of the border are known as, to be honest, a pretty awful nickname. We are known as, or they are known as, the Tartan Army. Okay, I'm sure you'd agree, a terrible nickname, Tartan Army. Now, whenever the Tartan Army are mentioned in a newspaper article, one phrase invariably appears. The author of that article, we use the phrase, blind optimism. And maybe you see why, don't you? Scottish football fans. You know, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, uh, Scottish football fans still are hoping for success. They're still hoping that they will win the game. It is blind, blind optimism. Well, surely what we've got in Esther chapter 4 is another example. Now, let's think about this. Another example of what appears to be on first reading, blind optimism. Now, think about the situation. Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai is trying to convince Esther, come on, please help your people. Please help your people. What does he say? Did you notice this in verse 14? Really seems to come out of the blue here. He says, Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews. You got that? What what I think to say? He says to her, relief and deliverance is going to arise. It's going to come for the... Do you see why that appears to be blind optimism? Do you see why that appears to be just an incredible thing for him? See! What did we see last week? This decree to destroy the Jews, do you remember? It received the royal stamp of approval, didn't it? This decree to wipe out this people group, it's now been enshrined into the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be revoked. Do you see what I mean? It's almost certain, isn't it? 
that these Jews are going to be wiped out, that they're going to be exterminated. All of them, it's certain. And yet, what's he saying? Relief, deliverance shall arise. Where's he getting this from? Where's this confidence come? Why is he saying that? I think the first thing we've got to do really is try and reconcile this with what we saw a minute ago. Like we were using Google Earth, were we not? And we've zoomed into the King's Gate. And what did you see when you looked in? You saw Mordecai. What was he dressed like? So he's dressed in sackcloth and ashes. And what was he doing? He's in floods of tears. He's kneeling on the ground in the dirt and he's wailing out. How do you square that? How do you reconcile that picture of grief with this great declaration of faith here? Do you see what I mean? Well, as always, the, the, the key is in the language. Friends, I would want you to, to follow me on this. It's not easy, but follow me here. Sometimes what a biblical author will do is that they will borrow language from somewhere else in the Bible. They will take that language in order to tell their own story. You got me? So they'll go to another portion of scripture. They will take a phrase, language, imagery from there and they will use that very same language in order to tell their own story. You got me? question we ask is why would they do that do you see why the author borrows imagery from elsewhere so that you and i the readers will interpret the present story in light of events that happen elsewhere you see now here's the thing you need to know in esther chapter 4 the author has taken language straight from somewhere else in scripture like this language that you and i are dealing with here about the jews it is taken almost word for word from joel chapter 2 so what's happening in joel chapter 2 well yes they're the people of god they're weeping and they're wailing and they're crying out but get this this is the important thing in joel 2 they are doing that in repentance before God. Do you see the weight that carries? Do you see what that teaches us about this? See in Esther 4, all these Jews throughout the Persian Empire, yes, they're crying out. Like, yes, they're fasting. Yes, they're weeping. But what are they doing? They're crying out to their God. See Mordecai here at the king's gate. He's not just wailing in sort of an inconsolable way. He's not just panicking about this immediate impending destruction of his people. What is he doing? Mordecai here is looking in his grief to Almighty God. And doesn't that now make sense of this grand declaration of faith? It's looking at God. If he's repenting before God, doesn't it make much more sense? He says these things now. Relief and deliverance shall arise. But there's surely a second question that we've got to ask here. Okay, Mordecai's looking to God. Here's the thing though. How come he is so sure the Jews will be delivered? You see what I mean? Like imagine the Persian Empire, can you? There were countless hundreds of different people groups. It was just a mismatch of all different races in the Persian Empire. How come this man here is so 
utterly convinced that the Jews will be saved. Hmm? Well, as always, we have to view to understand Scripture. We have to view it through, what am I going to say? We have to view it through God's covenant with man. Now, if you're visiting here this morning, you know what I mean, of course, by God's covenant with man, do you? The fact that at the very start of Scripture, in the aftermath of the fall, what has God done? What would you say God's done in the aftermath of the fall? He's set aside a particular people group for himself. Would you go there? Would you say that he has called out one people group for himself? He has. But what else has he done? Friends, at the start of Scripture, he has covenanted, he has promised to ever rule over that people. And so you begin to see it, don't you? You begin to see just why it is that Mordecai can have such incredible confidence here. Because what does Mordecai know? Mordecai knows that the Lord his God will never ever allow his people's destruction. He knows that nothing, listen to me, nothing, no one will ever see his people wiped out. He knows that the Lord Almighty, Lord of hosts, that he will always always, always act to protect those who belong to him. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I hope, just now, two things. Ready? One, I hope you understand the covenant of grace. I hope you understand what's happened to you. Do you know what's happened to you in Christ Jesus? You have been pushed into this glorious covenant community. Do you see that? That you in Christ Jesus, by God, have been taken in as part of his true Israel of faith. That's where you are. You're part of that community. But the second thing I hope is that you, friend, just now see how that helps you in a time of crisis. See, the stuff that I said at the start of the sermon is not just for effect. It's not. It's not just verbiage. Friend, I hope you see that, that one of the prevailing characteristics of your life as a Christian is going to be the characteristic of suffering. You understand that, don't you? That as Christians, the life ahead will involve pain. That these crises that we face, they may even see the end of our life. But what is it that we know as Christians? We know that in Christ Jesus, God has looked at you and me. And what has he declared for the whole earth to hear? He said of you and me, they are my people. And I am, and I will be their God. And you see what that means, don't you? It means that in this crisis, no matter what it is, we shall not be consumed. We shall not be consumed that eternally our God is looking over you. Eternally he has promised that he will provide you with spiritual protection. Ultimately, do you know what it means? It means that what Mordecai says here in Esther chapter 4, it is true. In Christ Jesus, what do we know? Relief and deliverance for all the people of Israel. It shall always, always, always arise. What can you do, friend, at a time of crisis? With Mordecai, what can you do? 
you can look to the eternal covenant faithfulness of your God. And then we'll end with a third challenge. And it is the challenge to rest ourselves in the purposes of God. The purposes of God. Now, we have all been here before, whether it is with our spouse, although I hope not, uh, whether it's with a flatmate, whether it's with a sibling or a friend, we've been in the situation where we are arguing with them. And then all of a sudden, they come up with the clincher. It's a disaster, isn't it? You know, you're arguing and they say something that we have got no comeback to, no answer whatsoever. And we've got to hold up our hands and admit defeat. It's never easy to do. And I see husbands and wives looking at each other and nudging each other in the congregation. Now, here's the thing. In Esther 4, we have got the clincher. You see the situation? Mordecai is trying to persuade Esther to get involved. And he comes up with something here that seems to win the argument. That he seems to say something to Esther that God uses to stir her heart. Now, you don't have to look at it, but you do have to listen to it. Let me read it to you, what he says. Here's the clincher. It's a question. Now listen. He asks Esther, Esther, and who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Let me say it again. Who knows, but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Now, you see what he's doing, do you? He is reminding Esther of the purposes of God, isn't he? Like he's reminding her there, you know, who knows that you've come a royal position for such time as this. He's reminding her that things for the people of God, they don't just kind of happen. Not just random. He's reminding her that there is the providential working of God. And you can almost hear her brain ticking over when he says that. She's like, well, well maybe he's right. Then maybe God has been working all of these things in my life to take me to this very moment so that I will act then maybe that is why I was chosen in the first place for the king's harem. Maybe that's why I was chosen as Vashti's replacement. Maybe God has been working all things like this for this moment here. And then you see what she does. She realizes this, the penny drops, and she goes out and she acts. She asks the people of God for help, and we see her move off to speak to the king. Friends, what I think we are dealing with there is surely one of the most reassuring truths in all of Scripture, especially for us in times of crisis. The truth that you are God, the one that you are here today to worship, He is a God of purpose. He's a God of purpose. That unlike your unbelieving friends, that see when that diagnosis comes back, See, when that redundancy happens and that relationship breaks down, what do you know as a Christian? Unlike your unbelieving friends, you know that that is not just one of those things. Isn't that reassuring? Isn't it? You know that's not just a random event. That's not just a meaningless event. What do you know as a Christian? You know that in those things, the almighty God has a purpose. You know that when that happens, that God is using that event right there. And why? 
He is using it for our eternal benefit. So I want to ask you this this morning. Are you there? Are you at that time of crisis? I know some of you are. I know that some of you are asking, why is it that the recent events in my life have been happening the way that they have? Why, God, why? Maybe Esther 4 is the answer that he's giving you. Maybe it's all been happening for just now. Maybe God has been using all of the things that have been happening to bring you to this place just now, this point in your life, that God is affording you the opportunity to stand up as a Christian, to go out there and to do as Esther did, to act boldly and bravely for him. Do you see? Maybe it is all, all of it, for such a time as this. And I'll end like this. See, when you see Esther moving off to see the king, what do you think? You see her move off like this, taking this big risk, moving off to see the king. When you see all of Esther chapter 4, where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Do you not think of another? Does Esther 4 not take you sometimes kicking and screaming, but does it not take you? To the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ? Surely it does. Remember what we said last week, friends. An edict stood over our head. And what did it say? What were the words on the edict above you? The wages of sin is death. That that was the judgment that we faced. And like here, what was true of our sovereign? Was he not also unapproachable? Would an audience with our king, given our sinfulness, would it not have brought death? But you see what God has done for us, do you not? He has provided for you and I a greater and a better mediator. One who would act on behalf of you and I. One who despite the cost would live, would die and rise. And why, I ask you, why? To save us, his people, from eternal destruction. So this is really the last question I'll ask you today. See the crisis you face just now. Is it a spiritual crisis? Do you know this morning in your heart of hearts that you are lost in darkness and in need of salvation? Do you know in your heart of hearts that that is true of you? If so, I urge you to do this today. I urge you to bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Bow as Mordecai bow. Bow in tears if you like, but do so in repentance of your sin. And if you do that, even today this morning... Here's a guarantee for you. You will find joy. And you will find peace in Christ Jesus. In fact, what is true? What is true, friends? In Christ Jesus, you will find the relief. And you will find the deliverance of Almighty
Let's pray.